Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, and I am the founder and managing director at an organization called the Anthony Microgroup. We help companies across medical technology space. So that includes medical device, digital health, and diagnostics to build high-performing teams in primarily technical areas like R&D, regulatory, quality, engineering, clinical, et cetera. And I have the privilege on a regular basis to feature best-in-class leaders straight from the industry on all things talent here on this show. And today, very similar. We're, we're speaking with Mr. Pat Stevens, the vice president of R&D, research and development for Shockwave Medical. Uh, for the last 20 plus years, Pat has worked across the design and development of novel medical devices for both startups and established companies alike. Companies like Boston Scientific, Medtronic Cardiovascular, Trivascular, which is now known as Endologix, to name a few. Now, Pat received his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Colorado Boulder and his master's degree in the same specialty from the University of Arizona. As I mentioned today, he serves as the vice president of R&D for Shockwave Medical. And for those unfamiliar with the organization, it is a cardiovascular medical device company changing how calcified cardiovascular disease is treated with intravascular lithotripsy. Did I say that right, Pat? You did, lithotripsy, that's right. Lithotripsy, all right. We were joking offline uh, how I couldn't get it right, but uh, Pat, nonetheless, man, thanks so much for being here. How are you? I'm well. My privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, the privilege is definitely mine. Before we get into the the topic, you know, I gave kind of a formal description, a high level of what the company uh, stands for, what you guys are doing. Anything that you'd like to add as far as what's going on with Shockwave and maybe some of the exciting things happening as far as what's going on for patients? Yeah, I mean, just to get a little background, I suppose would be helpful, you know, so as you know, you look at a lot of medical devices and treatments for cardiovascular disease over the years, you know, calcification itself has been a real difficult problem. A lot of those patients have been excluded from clinical trials and, and other therapies. And so what we, you know, launched out and ultimately the, the founders of, of Shockwave long before I joined um, identified this as an unmet need. And so they look to leverage some of the technology that had been well used in things like treatment of kidney stones and other things in neurology for treatment of vascular disease. And so they miniaturized the technology down, ultimately were able to get you know, shockwave therapy in, in into a balloon catheter itself, which is a system that's you know well known to physicians and, and very easy to use and was very effective in the modification of calcium. So you bring back the vascular compliance, uh, allows for treatment with stents and other you know sort of destination therapies and has been highly effective in, in the treatment of calcified arteries. That's awesome. Well, I obviously sought you out because I've got a lot of respect for what the company's doing and, of course, what you've done as a R&D professional over all these years. I, I mentioned you've been doing this for over 20-plus years. I want to go back in time and uh, and talk about a couple of things. How yeah. did you end up in MedTech in the first place? Well, I, I mean, I guess I'm fortunate. I sort of fell into it. I know a lot of people, you know, now go to, to, to college and, and they study biomedical engineering, and, and that's sort of, you know, what they want to do when they're, you know, taking on an engineering profession. For me, it was a little different. You know, I, I started off in, you know, mechanical engineering, 
I graduated, as you said, from the University of Colorado, and I didn't really want knew what I wanted to do. So I, I you know, fell into graduate school. I had a fellowship opportunity to go down to the University of Arizona and work for this area called the Space Engineering Research Lab. And it was a NASA-funded research lab that was really trying to talk about things like manned missions to Mars, which is, you know, sort of what they're working on right now. But in those days, that seemed pretty high tech and pretty interesting to me. So I went down there and, you know, did a master's degree, did some really interesting work and, you know, sort of was multi-body dynamics. It was some control theory stuff. And then as I came through the master's program, really wanted to go into industry and didn't know which industry I really wanted to go into. And had a couple of different opportunities at the end. You know, one was in, in printers. And that actually seemed interesting at the time. And the others was in medical devices. And I thought, well, let me just give medical devices a try. And uh, I guess in January, that'll be 30 years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. So I obviously like it. Wow. So yeah, I got that wrong. So almost, so at this point, almost 30 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving my age away, I guess. But yeah, no, it's, I, I was just going through the numbers in my head as you were talking. And yeah, so in 1993 in January was when I walked through the door at WL Gore and kind of, you know, bright eyed, just started my master's program and started the med device industry. Wow. That's great. I was thinking about where you went to school. You know, I'm here in the greater Denver area, so I obviously understand University of Colorado Boulder very well. But when I was in high school, I still have family to this day that live in Tucson. And I remember going down to the U of A to check out the campus thinking, I grew up in Chicago and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'd love to come down here. The weather's great. I love the yeah. campus. I ended up staying in the Midwest and, and going to Wisconsin. But yeah, great campus. And so I'm always kind of jealous when I see people went to U of A because I know what the college is like down there for sure. Yeah. No, great place to go to school. So bring us back even a little bit further. What were your childhood years like, your early years? What held your interest? You know, how'd you grow up? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I grew up sort of in a upper middle class family in Boulder. And for those that know Boulder, it's sort of this isolated little bubble in Colorado. And it seemed probably even more isolated in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. But, you know, I, I think at the time... You know, I, I had a lot of family and relatives of things that were science. And, my, you know, my grandfather in particular was a big influence on my life. He was at NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. And I sort of thought maybe, maybe science would be an area of interest. Um, at the time, of course, I, I also had other interests. I was, you know, really into sports and, you know, sort of, sort of thought about, you know, geez, it would be really fun to, you know, take that all the way through college and luckily decided not to do that and focus on academics and studies instead. But as I got a little bit older, kind of had a pivotal conversation. So a friend of mine said, you know, hey, Federico Pena, who was then the mayor of Denver, is coming over to my parents' house for dinner. Would you have any interest in meeting him? And I said, that sounds really interesting. I definitely would like to meet Federico Pena. And so I was a junior in college. And he, you know, first thing he asked me is, hey, what's next for you? And I said, I want to go to college. And he said, well, what do you want to study? And I said, um, thinking about, you know, different things, science and, and engineering. And I mentioned engineering and he spent the next sort of five minutes walking me through that when he was in law school, how all the engineers that, that he worked with had just really developed a fundamental sound thought process and they were good problem solvers. And regardless of, you know, what you wanted to go in long-term in your career, that was a great foundational thing to have. And so that was sort of when I decided maybe engineering, you, you know, was a good opportunity, even though I didn't have a lot of exposure to it growing up with, you know, parents or anything in the field and um, really happy I did. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, it's always interesting to me where those pivotal moments are, right? Had you not taken the, the opportunity to meet and have that conversation, perhaps you would have had a whole different uh, trajectory. Who knows, right? Yeah. And uh, and then had you decided to go into printers and give that a shot instead of medical device, you wouldn't have a 30 year career, perhaps in in medical device. So, you know, I mentioned that you're you're a vice president of R&D right now. You've had the opportunity to kind of work your way up across multiple different organizations. And you've gotten to where you are today for various reasons, obviously hard work 
perhaps some being in the right place at the right time. It's sticking your neck out, I'm sure. But I want to hear from you. If you look at over the course of your career to date, what are some of the pivotal moments that you think really helped you move not only into, into leadership, but then up through the ranks to where you are today? Sure. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I, my first five years in industry, like I initially said, I started off at WL Gorsa. I was in Flagstaff, Arizona, and working on clinical surgical devices at the time. And so these were the PTFE-based devices for surgery. And, and I like that. And sort of maybe the first, you know, part of this journey, as you think about is deciding that maybe I wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial. And that's ultimately how I ended up in the West Coast. So kind of a free stop in Santa Barbara for about 18 months, working on a biotech project. And then ultimately coming to the first round, and you mentioned Trivascular. I was the seventh employee at Trivascular at the time, and that seemed like that was really exciting and it's entrepreneurial. And so that was probably sort of the first step in the journey. Uh, and then, you know, kind of going through it at the time was really interested, focused on individual contributor work. So how do we make this device work? What are all the pieces that we need to put together to make the technology a success? And along the way, as the organization grows and there's opportunities arise, you've got to really make the decision do I want to stay on the individual contributor track or do I want to move to the management track? So that's sort of the next decision you've got to make. And I think it was really until maybe, you know, the human industry, like we talked about earlier, 1993, probably in the 2004, 2005 timeframe is I started managing technicians and ultimately bringing on and managing engineers that, you know, taking the management track was really the approach I wanted to take it. Really enjoyed mentoring, hiring, the hiring process, mentoring, you know, younger engineers, deciding how to architect a team and build a team of really you know, high performers. And what does that look like? What kind of complementary skill sets do you want to have on the team? And that was kind of the next step in that journey. And so, you know, from there, you just sort of walk up through and you kind of decide for yourself. And, and I think to some degree, be true to yourself as to what do you want to do? How much time do you want to spend in the lab doing technical work? How much time are you okay with in, in sort of, you know, I guess, living and, and really um, thriving through the work of others. And so as you get up and if you, you know, decide you want to continue that progression and ultimately into the executive ranks, you'll have to be comfortable that you won't be doing the individual contributor work any longer, but that your success is ultimately dictated by really identifying, bringing on high-performing teams and living through that. Have you ever heard of the book, The E-Myth? I have not. So I, I don't want to botch the author's name. The last name is Gerber. I think it's Richard Gerber. I have to double check. But in, that, in essence, what the book is all about is that you've got technicians, you've got manager, and then I forgot the other level. For those listening, I apologize. I'm not, <laughs> it's been a while since I read it. But the whole premise is that sometimes people who are fantastic individual contributors usually have a tendency to be promoted and, they, and their manager thinks, you know what, they're going to be great leader because they're great at their job. And then they become horrible managers. And what really made them good was that they were technicians. They were great at being an individual contributor, not necessarily, and it's a whole different skill set. So I'm wondering in your early days of leadership, what were some, maybe some of the growing pains that you faced when you were trying to get work done through others, but you were used to really kind of performing well doing the job? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I was lucky enough that the first engineer I hired, and you know, mentioned her by name, Janine Van Leeuwen, who, if she ever listens to this, you know, was probably one of my best hires in my career. You know, she came on and, you know, she started taking on some of the work that I was previously doing. And the first step in that process is letting go that nobody's going to do the work exactly the way you do it, right? So sort of the first thing is, you know, you're sort of, whether it's you're designing a fixture or you're sort of identifying and mapping out an experiment that you want to run, nobody does it exactly the way you do it. And if you try to, you know, have them do it, no, I'm going to change it around and do it exactly the way I do it. 
ultimately, one, they'll never learn, and two, they'll never be successful. So you have to be able to take a step back, let people, you know, learn on their own. And, and ultimately, that means that they're, they're going to have some failures along the way. It's not everything's going to be a success, but all of us have that, and that's how we learn. So I think that's an important first step for managers is really identifying that you have to let people go grow along the way. You want to give them boundaries. You want to give them advice and mentor them. But ultimately, they're going to have to be successful on their own. I want to push you a little bit more about how you got to where you are today, because there's great leaders out there, but they never become VPs. They, some people never become directors. They're managers for you know years on end, or they, and then they end up changing, maybe doing something different, or they stay you know, manager, senior manager. What's the difference? What do you think is the difference maker that some people rise to an executive level and some people who are strong leaders, they, they don't? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. I think, you know, for a really strong manager, the skill set is really you've got strong individual contributors are going to go off and they're, they're really the boots on the ground doing the work. And you're the one that needs to be, you know, identify the appropriate work that needs to get done, mentor those folks along the way. But the next step in your career is you're really managing the folks that manage those people, right? So you're not necessarily having, you know, direct contact as much with the individual contributors, although to some degree you are. But you have to be comfortable that you can identify what's the right skill set to be a manager to ultimately hire a manager and mentor those people. And as you get up and get progressively larger groups, you can imagine the group gets to be 100 people and we're almost there. We're growing to well over 100 probably by the end of the year in R&D at Chocolate Medical. You've got a number of directors that have individual managers, individual contributors. So that sort of the, the working knowledge of what any one individual does becomes less and less the further up you go. One is you have to be comfortable with that. And that, I think that's a challenge for a lot, of, a lot of folks. Two is I think you have to be really good at, at identifying the skill sets and okay with I really want to go out and hire people that are going to be better at things that, than I am. I'm not going to be a subject matter expert in everything that my team has to do. For example, I've got really talented software and electrical engineers in my team, and I don't know nearly as much about what they do on a day-to-day basis. But I know that I can hire a really strong electrical and really strong software lead that can ultimately identify who are the right managers and ultimately the right individual contributors to do those activities. Yep. For sure. And so, yeah, you bring up a good point as far as the higher level of leadership you take on, the more you have to trust that, you know, down the levels. And that's not easy, especially for people who are used to having control and feel like they need that to sleep at night. So it is yeah. it's a different skill set. What do you enjoy most about being a leader? You know, I enjoy the most. I think it took a little while to get here. So, I mean, this is not something that happens overnight, but I really do thrive when I see others succeed. And, you know, you know, it's sort of the first step is it's, it's, it's really great to see, you know, individual contributors go out and you see that ultimately their hard work comes, whether they get, you know, patents out of the deal or they design sort of, you know, best in class products or whatever the case may be. And I think that the next step is, is really identifying and hiring managers that you look at those people and you say, those people are really great managers. When I watch them work with their people, when I watch them mentor those folks, when I see them identify, you know, interview and ultimately bring on, on board retain really high quality talent. I think that's really rewarding. But I think it's a little bit, in some cases, you kind of have to check your ego at the door because if, if you worry so much about your direct influence on every part of that, then it'll be difficult for you to continue to progress because ultimately you have to be really satisfied that others should get recognition and others are going to do good work along the way. Mm-hmm. So you said you, you guys are almost a team of 100 people in R&D. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So, you know, I don't care if it's 
five people or a hundred people, each functional area has a culture within a culture of the business. Yeah. And obviously you have a lot to do with what the culture is of the R&D organization. Yeah. I'm curious how, so when, when you came in, how many employees were in R&D roughly? Uh, there were just less, I think slightly less than 30 people. So we were like, okay. Okay. So, I mean, that's crazy growth since you've been there. How do you come in, set a tone, and then maintain a tone that you think is important as you scale like that? Well, I think first, I guess you want to identify what is it that you currently do really well. So, you know, when I walked into Shockwave Medical, there's a lot of really good things that they're doing. I think, you know, the sense of urgency was really good. I think sort of the, the collaborative nature of the team was really good. So let's make sure we keep those attributes as we think about what makes us us and what makes us successful. You keep those attributes. But then as you scale, there's some things that you probably don't do well. You know, if all of your communication is informal and you don't have any business processes along the way, I don't want to overburden the system, but at the same time, I need to add enough structure so that you can continue to scale the organization. And so that's been the balancing act at Shockwave. And I think that's something that we continue to talk about on a regular basis because we continue to grow. We continue to probably add a little bit more structure along. Last thing I want to do is dampen any of the enthusiasm but any creative spirit, the innovative nature, for sure. And, you know, I know that top performers, top performers seem to have at least one commonality, and that is that they're always stretching, always looking for, you know, what's next. And that doesn't necessarily mean rising up the levels of leadership. It could be different types of projects to be exposed to. It could be different challenges as it relates to a, you know, a technical problem, like I said. But it's your job to obviously help spot top performance, especially on behalf of the organization when it comes to retention and succession, things like that. How do you spot top performers? What do you look for? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's, it's hard to put your finger on, but you know when you see it. And so I, I think for me, I'm looking at people that, one, sort of take strong ownership of things. So every time you provide something, provide an opportunity. And in some cases, you don't even need to provide an opportunity. You just have to say yes, people that are really high top performers. But they continue to, to want more, to continue to want to grow, kind of both as individuals and as leaders. And so those are the people that you, you want to identify. And so as I look about it, you know, sort of who are the people that you continually look at and say, that person always seems to get the job done, no matter how difficult it is. Who are the people that always seem to go out and hire the best folks? Who is it that every time I look around the room and say, what am I worried about? I almost never look their way. And I think those are clearly the top performers. And then I think... There's probably a second tier which have an opportunity to become top performers. And I think as kind of a manager and a leader, what you want to do is continue to grow those people so that you can look at them and say, you know what? A year ago, I was a little bit kind of worried about your performance, but today you're a really top organization. Do you think that a lot of this stuff is innate or do you think that it's learned over time as far as top performance goes and being what you would consider a quote unquote top performer? Yeah, I think, I think some of, I mean, look, there's cert, certainly for talent, I think there's a certain amount of talent that's innate, right? You know, sort of, you're given certain gifts when you're born and you know, some people have, you know, better aptitude in math and science than others. And, and some people kind of are better contributors in some way. I think the one thing that can be learned for everybody is, is sort of hard work. And so I think when you think about it, it's sort of like discipline and hard work can be, can be a learned trait for anyone involved. And I, you know, I guess my suggestion would be for anyone, you know, making sure that, you know, you, you look back, you know, at the end of the day and sort of say everything that I said I was going to do, I got done or I accomplished potentially more than I wanted to get done that day. And as I string several of those days and ultimately months and years together, that's really how I look at the world. 
that's something that those people have a much better chance of becoming high performers than someone who sort of said, yeah, I was really talented, but, you know, maybe I didn't quite, you know, do as much as I needed to do. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because depending on when this episode gets released in comparison to another one that I'm about to refer to, this other episode we talked about how sometimes it's almost better to look for underdog stories and to look for people with a chip on their shoulder and something to prove. Yeah. Versus pedigree and, and different degrees, because these people, you they're scrappy. You give them an opportunity to shine and they're not going to let you down. When you look back, is there a theme to that on your end? Is there a theme of the course of your career where people just needed an opportunity to kind of break through and they didn't let you down because they, they had that opportunity? Or is it a mixture where these people who were just, you know, they were just gifted, they were very talented, but they had the hard work ethic to go along with it? I think for me, it's mixed, you know, and, and, and I look at, well, I mean, I look at, at myself, I mean, you know, so, you know, I, I didn't go to the, the, the single top engineering school in the country, but I feel very good about my education. I think there are a number of people like me that can continue to grow in their careers. And so, you know, I, I think for those people, you end up being a little bit tougher, right? You know, I mean, because it will sort of look to your right, look to your left. Someone won't be here next year when you're in school. And that's sort of it's still, you know, all the way through, whether you're at the University of Michigan or the University of Colorado, there's, you know, hundreds of people in your graduating class, not tens of people like there would be in some other smaller schools. And and I think a lot of those people do very well. You know, I mean, I'm, I just have a tendency like, you know, they, they don't get sort of concerned when everything's not going perfectly well, tend to kind of work through challenges. You know, it's not like, they're looking for something spoon fed. Having said that, I've you know worked with some people that did go to top schools and were graduating sort of number one in their class, but have continued to put in the hard work. And some those people are absolutely amazing. So you know, I guess an answer to your question that's long winded is it, it's a mixed bag in my my experience. Yeah. Well, regardless, I guarantee you there's folks listening to this and thinking, you know what, I'm aspiring to do what Pat's doing right now. He's obviously built a storied career and I'd love to do something similar. What career and or life advice would you give to those who are listening, uh, who are maybe, maybe they're an individual contributor right now and they're about to get into management or maybe yeah. they're in management right now, but they're just trying to figure out how do I break through to the, to the next level? Yeah, I think, you know, it's hard to put your finger on, but, but what I would say is Make certain that every time that you move towards something, it's something that really interests you. So for me, the first step is don't go off and actually just chase the title. Really chase something that's of, of significant interest to you because that will enable you to put in the work. That will enable you to continue to grow in your career. And then lastly, there are opportunities are out there and sometimes you don't even know they're out there. So continue to be open-minded about what those opportunities look like. Continue to identify kind of where you want to go and, and if you're in the right place at the right time, which is kind of part of it, as we all say, right? There's a timing aspect to all this. I think good things will happen to you. You know, I've interviewed probably well over uh, across an older podcast and this podcast that we've been doing for quite some time, well over 50 to 70 leaders or so. Most of them on tops like this at the VP level or higher. And almost every single person has said, when it came time, to where cross-functional teams needed a, a project leader or there was an opportunity to get onto a project, I stuck my neck out and I volunteered. Even though it was outside of my comfort zone, I made sure to raise my hand and that really helped me get to where I am because I gained that experience even though it was outside of my comfort zone at the time and I didn't really know what I was doing per se. Yeah. Are there certain instances where this has happened to you? Absolutely. I mean, I think I remember distinctly when we were at TriVascular, you know, we, we were working on a project that was a abdominally aortic aneurysm treatment. So, you know, we we're working on that partnership with the organization. We identified thoracic aneurysms as an area that we we're interested in getting into. And they sort of said, yeah, I need someone to be the program manager for that to ultimately lead another group of team to go identify, is this something that we can accomplish? 
So as you said, that's my checked up. I said, absolutely, I want to try to do that. I had never been a program manager before. You know, I'd only been a relatively recent manager process. So that was a big growth opportunity for me. And I think to this day, I still really, you know, value what program managers bring to Bartley just because of that experience. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're batting 100%. Every single VP that I've talked to on this show and the show previous has said, I've stuck my neck out. I've gotten outside of my comfort zone and I've taken on projects on purpose to gain more experience, which then put me in a position to have more credibility then gave me more visibility within the organization and to happen to be a pivotal point in my career too, looking back as, you know, from where I am today versus where I was then. So I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Pat, I can't thank you enough for being here today. Kudos to you for what you've done with your career to date, what's going on with Shockwave. If it's okay with you in the show notes, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile for anybody who'd like to reach out and connect. And of course, I'll make sure to put a link into Shockwave for those interested in learning more. How's that? Absolutely. I appreciate that. If for anyone interested in Shockwave, there's a nice animation on the website. You know, I'd encourage people to go look at that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Mitch. I enjoyed it. It was great. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.